reading of God's word, and we're reading from uh, Lamentations chapter 5. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under the loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Was not the most uplifting reading. but it's important. We are continuing through Daniel. Daniel 9. We're getting close. I can see the end from here if I strain. Uh, I've I've really enjoyed going through this book. And uh, thank you, Mary, for sharing how it's blessed you as well. Um, Yeah, so this is, uh, this is a chapter I was looking forward to getting to, uh, being able to walk through this with you all. Um, So just a, just a question, no shame or anything. Who has read through this already? Anybody? Okay, good. You can put it up higher. You can be, you can be proud of that. That's okay. Um, well, that's good. I think this chapter, I, one, one thing that is 
it's not unique because we've seen it before, but in Daniel 9, we kind of get a, another glimpse of the kind of a, it's a more personal chapter, at least in the, the opening portion here. And we probably haven't seen this much uh, from Daniel personally since chapter 1. And so it's, it's interesting. It's chapter 1, you're at the beginning of his life. He's a young man making really important decisions for his life. And we get to chapter 9, and this is towards the end of his life, where we see where his faithfulness has, has brought him, but then also being confronted with just some of those same truths from when he was young and now he's old, and you, you get to see his heart around those things. So if you haven't, go ahead and turn to chapter 9. Um, as, we, as we started, to, we, we went through Lamentations, not the whole thing, just chapter 5 at the end. And it's, you know, it's probably not a book that we normally go to. Um, maybe if you're doing that, read through the Bible in a year, you'll get to Lamentations. I can't help but feel that Daniel was reading through this, and obviously he focuses in on a real specific part of Jeremiah, but this, this whole book, Lamentations, by the way, is, is included in the book of Jeremiah in the Hebrew Bible, in the Tanakh. So when he says he's reading the prophet Jeremiah, he very well may have been reading through that portion as well. You could ask, how in the world did Daniel get the book? Well, maybe some of the privileges of being the head of the Magi, you can just simply put out a request and somehow you get a copy of this book from a prophet who has been taken out into exile. I mean, it's uh, pretty interesting that Daniel would have this, but he, in reading through Jeremiah, uh, reading through those things there, you have to, you have to appreciate how this must have made Daniel Feel. I mean, for us, we read through some of the details of exile and read some of the details of the, you know, the history of it. We could even read history books on the campaigns and different things. But for Daniel, when he reads through this, this is where he's from. This is his home. And even though this may have taken place decades, decades in the past, you can imagine being a young man and living through some of this and then reading the prophet recount some of these things. That had to have some sort of an impact on him. And as we read through this, this part of Daniel, I hope that we can appreciate some of that. This is not just a dry piece of history for Daniel. This is something that he lived through. This is something that he had to endure, at least a portion of it. We don't know how protected he was or anything else, but it was what's go what was going on around him. And so hopefully when we, when we get back, here, back into Daniel here in, in chapter 9, we read through this, we can appreciate some of those details there. So when he is talking about reading through this, it's something that's weighing very heavy on him. It's not just a point of history. It's not a date or event. This was something that he had experienced. So let's go ahead and go to chapter 9. We're, we're going to read through a portion of it. This is his, his prayer. So let's, let's go into that chapter 9. Let's look at verse, 
verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Eshwaris, the descendant of the Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of the years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must before the end, I'm sorry, must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And so he was reading through this and he perceived that 70 years would be that time frame for their exile. Verse 3, then I turned my face to the Lord God. Pause there for a second. He reads through this, and the first, his first response is to respond to the Lord in prayer. That, has, that, that can't be overlooked. He didn't turn inward. He didn't talk to his, his buddies and recount some of those things from what we see here. He read through these things and then turned to the Lord. Turned his face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting, with sackcloth and ashes. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belong righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belong open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that were written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. So Daniel reads through this, uh, this account, and it just says the books, so it may have been more than Jeremiah, but it was at least the prophet Jeremiah. And as we've already recognized here, his first response was to turn to the Lord. But, but how did he turn to the Lord? He turns to the Lord in confession, and he confesses sins. What's interesting is Daniel, in reading the book of Jeremiah, does recognize Jeremiah as a prophet. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but if prophets existed at this, you know, lived at the same time, did they 
read each other's books and regard it as scripture. Well, it definitely would seem that Daniel did at least. Recognize Jeremiah as a prophet of the Lord. One thing Daniel does here is he confesses his sin, but also the nation's sin. And this is, I think, really significant. What Daniel is doing here, this type of prayer, you'll, you'll notice here that he uses that collective understanding. He says, we have. He is confessing on behalf of Israel. Definitely here, what he is doing is he's, at, this, at that moment, he is acting in that role of being a priest. He is going before the Lord for his people, his nation, and himself. And he is confessing these sins. This is what seems weird, though. Throughout this entire book, we've highlighted the fact that Daniel is a faithful man. He's a righteous man, that he made good decisions. Even faced with really difficult choices, he made decisions that were pleasing to the Lord. Is he a man? Yes. Did he make mistakes? Yes, most definitely. We just don't have many of them recorded. When he's present, well, he did write the book, but he doesn't seem like the guy who would leave stuff out, all that to say. We know that he's not perfect, but in every example that we see, he makes good decisions. So here is Daniel making confession. But does he say, all of those other people, they really sinned against you. He does talk about the kings and his fathers and those types of things. But he does not exclude himself. There's a recognition that he is a part of this whole. And so he brings this to the Lord as part of that group. And what I find really significant is the fact that he is doing this in a time where you could not go to the temple to worship. He is, he is acting on behalf of the nation. There is no high priest operating as far as we know. The temple has been destroyed. There is no Levitical priesthood that is operating as far as we know. Daniel here is operating in that role. This highlights the fact that no matter what's going on in the world, no matter what is happening with God's people, there is always a remnant. There is always a group that has maintained their faithfulness. And so on behalf of the nation, this faithful man includes himself in this and confesses to the Lord the sins of the nation. This may have been the only representation of that. We also have Ezekiel, and I'm sure you have some faithful. But are they performing these different things? We have no information on that, but we know at least Daniel is. We know that Ezekiel lives. He is, he is there. He's also a prophet. He's also worshiping the Lord. But Daniel is doing this on behalf of the nation. Daniel is most likely reading through, at least in portion of this, Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25. Verse 12 highlights the fact. Let me see if I can find it here. I know my numbers. Here we go. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation 
the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Here's what's interesting about this. Is prescribed here in Jeremiah is the number of years, 70 years. 70 years will bring this captivity to an end. Jeremiah highlights this fact that Babylon will be judged. So, why does he pray? Why does it matter? It is already prophesied 70 years. Do you think that 70 years will be completed and these prophecies will come about, whether Daniel prays or not? You could ask, why, why is Daniel even spending that time praying that the Lord would restore them because he just read that they would? Or that he would, I should say. That he would restore them. So why, why, is, he, why is he being all dramatic and praying for it? God already said he's going to do it. And in a few years, it'll be done, and then he'll go back. Or they'll all go back. The nation will go back. So why? Why pray for it? It's already there. I think Daniel recognizes that he is a participant in these things. It is still his role to confess. It is still his role to be a part of this. Even though God has said, hey, in 70 years this will be over. There is still a responsibility that he has. God still wants our participation in events. God still wants us to be a part of this. So let me, I'll, I'll put it in a different way. How often have we prayed something that we know is good, that we know that the Lord wants, and we end it with, and your will be done? How many of us have done that? So let's, let's flip this around. Daniel reads through this and he sees it's going to be in in 70 years, the captivity will be completed. He's an old man at this point. He's drawing close to that. Why wouldn't you pray to be a part of that? How, How else should he pray? Is this not the best way to pray and be a part of God's will? You pray something that you know is going to happen. You know that he has said he's going to do and to accomplish. Why wouldn't you just participate and be a part of that? And maybe I'm belaboring the point a little bit, but I think for us sometimes we sometimes have this thing around prayer. We know that God's going to do his will anyway. I already prayed for that part, so why should I continue to participate? Why should I continue to do that? And here's Daniel, who's praying fervently sackcloth and ashes, fasting. Praying these things with a fervent heart, something that the Lord said he was already going to do. I think sometimes we miss out on that. Prayer is that we might participate in the will of God. Jesus himself, when he gave an example for his disciples on how to pray, one of the lines in the disciples' prayer, the Lord's prayer, is... Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that going to happen anyway? So why would we pray for it? It's because the, Lord's wants, the Lord wants us to participate in these things. How better 
How much better can we pray than to pray exactly what God's will is? That we might be a participant in that thing that will take place and that will happen. I think sometimes we get it backwards. Well, God already said it's going to happen, so I don't need to pray for it. God wants us to be a part of his plan. God wants us to accomplish those things with him, to live out that righteousness. So in looking at this, Daniel is confessing the sins of the nation. So going back to Lamentations, there's a lot of discussion on what the ramification of that sin is. So what were the sins that Daniel was, was confessing? What, what horrible things did his ancestors do? Did the kings do? If we were to go back and really read through times of the, the, the times of the kings and the different kings that ruled, something that was really consistent, and this goes all the way back to the time of Moses even, was there was this temptation to serve other gods, to follow after them. And there, I mean, that's a whole sermon series in and of itself, what that looked like. We see that highlighted throughout some of the stories that are really familiar to us. Even some of the kings that we know, the good kings, like Josiah, right? He went and he tore down the high places and he was a good king, but the good kings are few and far between. It was very consistent that the nation went after those other gods. There's one place where we can find a nice little encapsulation, Second Chronicles 36. The last chapter of Chronicles, which is also kind of interesting because in the Hebrew Bible, this is the end of the Old Testament. Chronicles. Chapter 36, let's look at verse 21. Gives us a little insight. I'm going to go back and read the last verse because I realize it's in the middle of a sentence. It's not up there, but you can just listen. Verse 20 says, He took the exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate to keep, uh, it kept Sabbaths to fulfill 70 years. So we know the horrible sins of the nation in going after other gods. But in 2 Chronicles, it brings up something else. It talks about Sabbaths. Seventy years worth of Sabbaths. So the land being able to, well, Sabbath to rest for 70 years. What, what's that about? The land, according to the law, the land was to experience its own Sabbath. So we're familiar with the weekly Sabbath, right? Every seventh day. That's actually what Sabbath means. It just means seven. So every seventh day, uh, the Lord said to rest, to follow the pattern that we see in creation, to rest from our work. Well, the land was also to receive a Sabbath every seventh year. Do you know what you would do with your land in that seventh year, in the Sabbath year? Do you know? 
Yeah, nothing. You would do nothing. You would let it just lie fallow, just grow wild, just leave it alone. You wouldn't plant anything. So think about that for a second. Maybe that doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but imagine that you're in an agrarian society where you don't have the ability to get food anywhere else. What does a Sabbath year mean for you? Think about it. That means for a whole year, you're not going to plant. You're not going to gather. Farmers get a year off. Well, they probably had animals, but you you know what I mean. Think about that, though. Does that sound wise? Does that sound like a wise thing to do? That for a whole year, you're just not going to plant? I am sure, I'm not actually sure, but I think that is probably the conversation that happened every seventh year. Should we really do that? Did God really mean that? I don't know what those discussions sounded like, but I do know this. As a society, they did not do it. Ever. That's not to say that there weren't individuals that did, and there very well may have been. Just like Daniel, a faithful man during a generation of unfaithfulness, maybe there were individuals who did. We don't know. But nationally, it was never something that was done or encouraged. For how many years did they skip them? Well, I think Second Chronicles tells us there were at least 70 Sabbath years that were not followed. So yes, we've got following after gods and some of those other things, but I think the Sabbath year is another evidence of the heart of the people, okay? This is one of those that probably if we were involved in some of those conversations may come to that same conclusion. Did God really say Wow, who does that sound like? Did God really say that every seventh year we shouldn't do that? Maybe there was some some grammatical gymnastics they did. Maybe they just all pretended to forget. Oh, I thought that was next year. Oh, well, I guess we'll plant again. You know, who knows what that was, but they just didn't. And the Lord kept a record of this. He knew. And so that was the length of time. I want to highlight the fact that this part, so you've got the immorality of following after gods, but, but this is another one. I think this one hits, hits us, it should hit us in a particular way because I think this is, <laughs> this is a financial sort of sin. This is a everyday living kind of sin. This is a, really God, did you really want us to do that sort of a sin? This is not taking God at his word. What's more, this is not trusting the Lord that he actually cares about you and actually is going to take care of you. That was a whole year worth of God showing up to provide for you that you didn't get to experience. You didn't get to experience the faithfulness of the Lord when he told you, don't plant and see how he showed up every day. They never experienced that. At least not recorded. So think on that. What type of sin is that? That's probably the kind of sin that we ourselves would talk ourselves into as a community. Very easily could have been. I don't want to put sins in our mouth. No. 
I don't want to accuse ourselves of sins that we're never presented with and have the opportunity to live against. But think about it. If that was what we had to face, would we not make a similar decision? Convince ourselves, like, oh, this is a good idea. This is wisdom. Why would God want us to be stupid? And not provide for ourselves. And I'm only belaboring it because I think it's something that we don't think about enough. We understand the following after other gods, but the fact that this is highlighted in Chronicles as a listed reason and for determining the length, I think it's kind of important. I think it's, it's for us to wrestle with some of those things. If the Lord is calling us to do something, then that kind of goes against wisdom, but we know specifically God wants us to do it. Maybe we're missing out on something. Maybe we're missing out on the Lord showing up and doing something amazing in our lives. Anyway, there's, there's more to, to look through, but this is definitely something I wanted to stop for a minute to really think about. Maybe it's a good thing for us to talk about on the way home in the car or truck or whatever. Verse 18. Let's look at verse 18 here. And all the vessels of the house of the Lord, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord. Not wrong chapter. Verse 18. In the appropriate chapter. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay, or delay not, for your own sake. O my God, because of your city and your people are called by your name. This plea here specifically is not because they have done anything great. Daniel returns to this idea that they are the ones, it's their, it's their fault. And so it's not because they're so great. It's because God is great. And for God's name, for his sake, for his glory, to display his mercy, Daniel pleads with the Lord to fulfill this. Again, this is Daniel participating in this. He is highlighting the fact, he's bringing to mind the reason that God should restore them. One thing that's really quite amazing He's, he's praying this in regards to God's righteousness, right? But he does this without a temple. There is no priesthood. There is no sacrifice. He is doing this as a faithful man in Babylon. He is doing this. He is performing this prayer, this, this time of worship with the Lord as a man without any of those things that they would normally look to to be in communication with the Lord in that way. This is a faithful man reaching out to a compassionate God far, far away from the grounds of the temple. And yet he cries out to the Lord. Does the Lord hear him? Is the Lord unable to act? 
He hasn't been able to offer grain offerings. He hasn't been able to do the drink offerings. He hasn't been able to appeal to a priest, to the high priest. He can't sacrifice. There is no lampstand lit. Does the Lord hear? Look at verse 20. Daniel says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sins of my, or the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Pause there for a second. Daniel is doing this at the time of the evening sacrifice. He is still operating as, as close as he can to what God has prescribed, even though he has none of the implements to do so. No means to do it. He is still operating at the same time. I just find that to be just a really cool thing. Even for how many decades has he been doing this? And he is praying in this way at the evening sacrifice. Oh yeah, and an angel shows up. That's pretty neat too. So here's Gabriel. He just shows up there at the evening sacrifice. Verse 22. It says, he made me understand speaking with me and saying, oh Daniel, I have come. Uh, I have come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understanding of the vision. We'll pause there for a second. How cool is it that Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, you're, you're somebody who's greatly loved. That's pretty neat. That's worth to stop for a second to think about it. Right? Hey, just to let you know, you, we're all big fans of you. <laughs> Up there. Maybe it wasn't said like that. Here's something else to consider. There's one other person that's identified as someone whom God loves. Anyone know? No? Okay, yes, Jesus. Who else? Oh, who said that? Yeah, John. John is identified in the Gospel of John as who? The disciple whom Jesus loved, right? And isn't it interesting that it's Daniel and it's John who get these incredible apocalyptic visions? They're so loved by God that they are trusted with this really really heavy and important message from the Lord. I just find that interesting because you might think, pick somebody else. If I'm so loved, why are you giving me these terrible visions? But no, the Lord is entrusting them to him. And I just think, I just think that's such a neat thing to think about. So let's look at this here. So he says, I've come here to give you vision. And it says, and understand the vision, he says. So look, verse um, 24. Before we go into this, this is the last portion here. So we're going to go through this last part of this chapter. And this is uh, going to be the kind of the, where we finish up is this vision. Um, this is a very, uh, depending on what book you read, depending on what articles you look at or whatever, this, this is one of those parts of Daniel that can be contested quite a bit between different groups and understandings and things like that. Uh, so as we go through it, I want to try to break it down. We could, we could spend another week here. We want to kind of push our way through. We can see the end of Daniel. Let's, let's, let's push through there. No reason to give this, this section here its whole, like a whole week. We can, we can do it tonight. But I want to kind of encapsulate it 
so that we can kind of handle it a little bit, right? So he discovers in scripture, this is also pretty neat. He discovers this from scripture already. He's already been given the revelation from God, from the prophet. He already has that, that understanding. So what he receives is a little bit more, a little bit more on top of it. So what he sees is there are 70 years prescribed for the captivity. So the angel says, in addition to that, for the nation, there's prescribed another 70 sevens. Got the 70 years, got that. There are 70 sevens prescribed. Now I know that in some of the translations that says weeks. How many of you have a translation that says weeks? Or you just remember it. I thought it was 70 weeks. It is, but a week in Hebrew is a seven. And so it's, it can be translated week, but it really is just a seven. And so we look at it in this context here. We have, no, it says here, 70 weeks are decreed. Um, this seven, we have multiple sevens. These 70 sevens, I should say. It says that they're decreed for your people and your holy city. That's uh, what the angel delivered. So here's that next seven. So I'm going to encapsulate it. Here's a statement. You can just kind of write this down or put it back. This is kind of an explanation of the whole thing in a nutshell. In the future, after the sacrifices are restored, a he will arrive and the sacrifices will cease and desolation will come. That's the whole thing in a nutshell. Remove the numbers. Just That's, that's the nutshell of it. The more complex part of this vision it actually gives the numbers and prescribes a few more details. But let's hang on to that understanding. This is talking about in the future, sacrifices will cease and it'll be desolate. And the reason I want to say it like this, it is so easy in the last part of this chapter to forget what we're talking about. Daniel already read and discovered that 70 years were prescribed for the captivity. So he's looking forward to going back, right? He's praying to the Lord, confessing sins of the people, but that is prescribed. They are going to be going back. What they get here is from the angel, yes, that has happened. At the time of Daniel, the sacrifices had ceased and the temple was laid desolate. That was the current position that Daniel was in. And so the angel is saying, Yes, you will return, you've got that, but there's more. This is going to happen again in a different way, but it's going to happen again. So in walking through this, we'll just kind of gather this thing here and and we'll we'll, we'll see if we can walk through in in a way that's good to understand here. 70 weeks or 77 is a decree about your people, your holy city. Those are two things that are in line, the people and the city. And there are, a list of things here. There's six things that are listed for these 77s, all right? To finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring everlasting righteousness, seal both vision and prophecy, anoint the most holy place. That was six, right? Those are the things that are prescribed. We'll, We'll walk through those things here real quick. Finish the transgression, um, yeah, we'll do it like this. Finish the transgression. These are the things that are prescribed. 
What is the transgression? What was one of the main reasons they went to Babylon? Idols. Following after false gods. You know that after they returned, it was not like that. Throughout the history, they didn't go after other gods the same way that they had before. Who knows, maybe living in Babylon really, they, they had their taste of other gods. Who knows? But when they returned, they didn't go back after other gods. You didn't see the Asherah go back up. You didn't see the Baals go back up. You didn't see the high places rebuilt. They just didn't do that stuff anymore. There's one thought that once they returned, that now is this time where they, they really did focus in on the Lord. The fact that they were his people. So, finish the transgression. Put an end to sin. These 77s also cover that part of time where Jesus did arrive. And so that fulfills Genesis 3.15, a dealing with sin. This prophecy that was done a long, long time ago. The crushing of the head of the serpent. Atone for iniquity, the death and resurrection of Jesus is also in light here. Bring everlasting righteousness, bringing an end to the reign of sin. When Jesus was resurrected, took care of sin. These are all great things, by the way, right? Seal both vision and prophecy, or, uh, or vision and the prophet. This has to do with the fulfilling of the promises that the, the prophets already gave. And that, that actually extends out to the full 70, uh, 77s. And the last one, anoint the most holy place. Uh, depending on your translation, it may say holy one. Grammar, better understood to be a place. The, the most holy place. This most likely is referring to this time of anointing of this new temple that Ezekiel was talking about. This new future temple. And the reason for that is because part of the description here has to do with the temple that would be built when Daniel arrived being made desolate again. So that means we're looking forward to the anointing of this third temple. So what we have here is, well, we'll just go and read this part and then we'll come back. Uh, Know therefore the understanding that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So seven sevens, from the time where they're told to go out and to go rebuild the city, there would come an anointed one. The timing works that from the decree of Cyrus, that's recorded in Second Chronicles and um, recorded, obviously, in Nehemiah, from the time when Nehemiah shows up happens to be exactly to the day 49 years. You could say, Nehemiah is not a... Messiah, anointed one. Well, in fact, he is. He is a governor. That is included in that list of anointed ones. You say, yeah, but he wasn't actually anointed. Well, we don't know that for one, but secondarily, um, it also talks about another anointed one or a prince who definitely was not uh, anointed by Israel, but we'll get to that in a second. So, There's that one. Then in verse 25, it continues. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in troubled times. So it's talking about the city of Jerusalem being rebuilt. 62 sevens. 
Who's doing their math quickly? How many years is that? 434. There, sorry. I'll just give you the answer. 434. It's okay. You can work on it. Uh, 434 years. So from the time of, of uh, the rebuilding up until time. It says that it's built with squares and moats. So it's this time of rebuilding. It stays intact. It's not destroyed again. It's continually being built and worked on, which we definitely see. It says, but in troubled times. So that time period, that 400 years, 400 plus years, is during the time of the Greeks, which was talked about last week, time of the Greeks and the time of the Romans. Definitely troubled times for people of God. After these 62 weeks, an anointed one shall cut off, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It then shall come with a flood. And to the, uh, I'm sorry, and to the end there shall be a war, desolations are decreed. This one here, uh, I was talking with John about this um, last week. This one, I think, corresponds to the actual destruction of the temple. Titus oversaw that. He happened to be a prince, which works out. His father was emperor at the time. He was a co-emperor. He was the son of the emperor. Um, but he was, he was cut off. He actually did not tell the people to destroy the temple, his, his uh, soldiers, but they did. So in 70 AD, you have a destruction of the temple that destroyed uh, not just the, uh, the temple itself, but also the surrounding areas there. So that definitely fulfills that. It says, and verse 27 is interesting because it, it does a whole time jump. It says, oh yeah, and in the last one, it says, and then he shall make a strong covenant for many, or sorry, with many for one week. For half of a week, he shall put an end to sacrifices and offering. And on the wing of abominations come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. What does all that mean? You have a a he that comes in the future and causes sacrifices to cease and then brings desolation to the temple again. And that's how we know it's a future Thing because we just talked about the destruction of the temple and it says, oh yeah, and then after it's rebuilt again and the sacrifices are started, they're going to cease again. This most likely is the Antichrist who will show up. That's the he. And it says, make a strong covenant with many for a week. This most likely is the, uh, the covenant that he makes with Israel it says a strong covenant. Most likely this is him attempting to say he's fulfilling the new covenant. We'll get into some of the particulars on the Antichrist in the, in the future here. But for this, there is a, almost a mockery of what Daniel would have read in Jeremiah 31, 31. Which is the fact that God is going to establish a new covenant. So Daniel receives this word, and we actually have a break here from the normal pattern, because normally, Daniel receives a vision, 
And then what happens? Receives a vision, and then what happens after the vision? Say it louder. He gets an interpretation. Did we get an interpretation here? No, here's just the vision. Do you know why we didn't get one here? Because Daniel already had it. Daniel already got it. It was what he had already read. See, because here's, here's the point of this. Daniel at that time was experiencing a time where the sacrifices had ceased. He was experiencing the time of desolation. And what had he discovered in the book of Jeremiah? A promise of return and a promise of restoration. He already had the interpretation. What was going to happen after this? The thing that he was living through right then. This is a very interesting kind of way to turn, turn it on its head. But there was a promise of restoration. I really do think that's why the angel doesn't bring an interpretation. Daniel already had it. He already had what he needed to understand what was to take place in light of this prophecy. This vision of the future. This whole chapter has to do with a few things. And I think sometimes we get lost in the future stuff. But it has to do with a few things. It has to do with the judgment of God and it has to do with true worship. True and real worship. He sees that they will return to the land and it will be restored. So the real question is, during this time, did true worship cease? I think we have seen the example of Daniel that even though the temple is gone, sacrifices are ceased, true worship has not. Both he and Ezekiel have been able to follow after the Lord, seek the Lord, receive messages from the Lord. And in fact, Ezekiel saw in his vision the mobile throne of God that can move in any direction. It's not limited. It's not stuck in the temple somewhere. But he's able to move and to be there with them. True Worship can take place anywhere. And this is something I think that we need to, to hang on to. Nothing can stop the true worship of God, no matter where you are, no matter the circumstance that you're in, no matter what you're experiencing. Nothing can hold back that true worship of God. The Lord is more concerned with your allegiance than with your sacrifice. I'll say it again. He is more concerned with your allegiance than he is with your sacrifice. He tells Isaiah straight out, I don't, I don't, I don't love you killing animals and your festivals and things. What I want is you. What I want is your true worship. John chapter four, Jesus interacts with a Samaritan woman at the well. They're having a little theological conversation. Where's true worship happen? Does it happen on Mount Gerizim? Does it happen in Jerusalem at the temple? Where? Where's true worship? And Jesus says, hey, just let me just tell you, there's going to come a time where you're not going to worship either place. He says, there's going to come a time where those who want to worship the Father will worship him in what? Spirit and in truth. Here's the fact. Here's, here's what Daniel is is learning here from what his people had done and confessing the sin and seeing the restoration and then the promise that it's going to happen again. 
The Lord wants all of you. The Lord wants all of your worship. He's not satisfied with you just bringing sacrifices. He's not satisfied with you just fulfilling the law. He's not satisfied with you just giving lip service. He's not satisfied with any of those things. If you try to hold back even your resources, no. He wants all of you. He wants all of your worship. He's not interested in lip service. And he's not interested in halvesies. He doesn't want that. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. But many of you can quote it. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or another way to look at that, your reasonable worship. It's a rational thing to give God your everything. It is a rational thing for you to put yourself every day on that altar to say, I am a living sacrifice. I'll be back here tomorrow. It is a rational and spiritual thing for you to do that. And that is expected. That is what the Lord wants. We now live in that day. There is no temple. Sacrifices have ceased, right? For us. Now for us, we experience this because our sacrifice has already taken place. So I'll ask you, how is your reasonable and spiritual sacrifice? How is your reasonable and spiritual worship? It is one thing for us to come together and to collectively do this, but what the Lord wants is all of you not part of your life, not a portion, not what's expected. He wants all of you, all of your worship, everything. It's all or nothing. You can't put your feet in, test the waters a little bit. You got to jump all the way in. That's it. That's what the Lord looks for. And that's what the Lord wants. Does he have all of you, including all of your Sabbaths? Honestly, this is the goal of true discipleship. There are a few instances where people said that they wanted to follow Jesus, but they had an excuse. Lord, I'll follow you, but let me bury my father. Let the dead bury their own dead. That's not very Jesus-like, but it actually was. That was very Jesus-like. Saying, I don't want your excuse. Just come follow me. Peter and John, what'd they do? Jesus said, follow me, and what'd they do? Drop their nets. They just dropped them. I mean, I don't know what else they would have done with them. Drag them out or something, but maybe finish the day's work. No, he, they, just, they just went. They got up and went. It's gonna cost us something. But the question is, are we those who are true worshipers of God? Are we those who hold back? Or are we those who give completely? The Lord knows. I pray for us that we would be those who would choose that all to give him our all. Heavenly Father, we are, Lord, of all people to be, Lord, rejoicing in the fact that we have your word. We live in relative peace. We are all fed. We have homes. We have been blessed beyond so many. 
We're blessed to the point that would be not able to be understood by not just the world that we live in now, but in generations past. We have truly seen your hand at work in providing for us and caring for us. And Lord, I pray that we, who are the people of God, would not hold back. Though we have been given so much, Lord, we know that so much is required of us. Lord, I pray that we would be those worshipers who give all of ourselves rather than be those who calculate out the 10% to give, we're generous with everything rather than those who really sit to think, well, God told us to do this. Should we do this? Is it wise? Lord, that we would just with reckless abandon follow after you in faith, knowing and understanding that you are the one true God, the one who gives mercy, the one who gives grace, the one who is the dispenser of resources. Lord, we know that you are the one who not only loves and cares for us, Lord, but you've called us to good works. And Lord, I pray that we would, Lord, as your worshipers, your followers, that we would daily give ourselves as a living sacrifice. As your son said, we would be willing to pick up our cross and to follow. Lord, I pray that we would be marked as a people who would learn to give sacrificially of our time, our efforts, our resources of all those things, Lord, I pray that we would be known as that, Lord, that not for our own glory, but just as Daniel said, Lord, for your name's sake, for your glory, your righteousness, Lord, I pray that we would, Lord, be a people who are marked by that, those who give glory unto you with all of our lives and all of our worship. And pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.